3: this is the starship sofa everybody welcome Hello and welcome to show 181 I am your host, Tony C. Smith So I hope everyone is fine and dandy Ah yes, spring has arrived here now We are in bloom, lovely Listen, I'll tell you what's coming up in today's show We have some news on Starship Sofa Stories Volume 3 We have a fact article on everything with Morgan Saletta Main Fiction comes from Adam Troy Castro. Then we have Film Talk with someone new this month, Dennis Lane. I'll, I'll give you a little heads up what's going on there. Then we have Michael Swanick's How to Run a Con, Part 5. That is Starship Sofa's show 181. Let's jump in with some News. <laughs> So first up, we've had... Oh, it's fantastic news. We've had some great news. You know, the world at the minute, you know, we're at it again. The UK bombing, you know what I mean? We're, we're there bombing the hell out of people. And all that kind of horrible thing going on in the world over at Tokyo. You know, just some scary pictures there. And yet there was one man out there who has done the honourable thing there. The man has... Fantastic news John Joseph Adams has proposed to Christy Yant He got down on one knee What a guy, what a hero And has asked Christy to marry him And Christy has said Yes, isn't that fantastic news John Joseph Adams and Christy Yant (laughs) That's just fantastic news If you go over to John's site he's got the he's got like how we kind of set everything up honestly it's so romantic and so nice they've got these little wish boxes that this is Christy has been puts her little wishes inside these little boxes that she makes up and John made one of these up as well and like see grandma I think it was grandma's ring as well and like got took another special place and got down on one knee (laughs) that doesn't happen no more you know what I mean that's love my god use used to fantastic news thank you so much for sharing that with the world as well what amazing people excellent and actually today's story and it's all thanks to John as well because we went talking when I had John on the phone about you know the, the Lightspeed magazine and his new magazine Fantasy magazine you know we mentioned that Adam Troy Castro Lightspeed you know he's up for a Nebula Award John's let us kindly play his new this story Abbey's and it's Christy that's narrated as well So a little bit of a, <laughs> a of engagement present for all Thank you very much yous too That's just amazing news Yep, totally amazing news Another heads up Just to let you know The very first Blood and Chrome podcast Hit the airwaves And download figures are stunning Do you know what I mean? It's like in the first week It's, well it's actually the first few days Because it hasn't really been a week yet It's it's Wow, you know what I mean? I don't know if that's like, a, everyone will listen to it and then go, oh, what a file. But please head over there. If you want to just listen to two lads talk about everything Battlestar galactic you know, it's myself and Dolan Williams ramble on about everything Battlestar galactic at the new Blood and Chrome TV programme that's coming on. Hopefully that's coming into a kind of season or a series and anything, basically, as well, anything TV related. You know, most people know I'm a big Red Dwarf fan, and I'm sure, you know, Dylan is there. Dylan, sorry, get that right, is as well. And we'll be hitting all things topics, you know, fringe as well, and everything like that. So if you like more of a TV slant to your shows, come over to Blood and Chrome com. <m Swan> I think we'll kick off with a fact article before I jump in with Starship Sova Stories Volume 3 News. But first off, that man himself, Morgan Saletta, with his everything. Morgan, sir.
2: Hello and welcome to another installment of Life, the Universe and Everything. Reflections on science, science fiction and philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta. In the last couple of installments, I have been exploring the theme of science fiction's reflective nature using the image of a hall of mirrors. In this grand hall of mirrors, we find the myriad of others which reflect humanity's image of itself back at us. To this hall of mirrors I have suggested, science and science fiction have added a major trinity, the ape, the alien, and the android. In past installments, I have discussed the ape and the android, and explored the way these creatures reflect human nature and the human condition back at us, drawing on ideas from science, science fiction, and philosophy. Today, as you may have guessed, I would like to focus on the alien. So, let us re-enter our grand hall of mirrors, walking past murky side chambers and gilt-framed looking-glasses in whose oceanic depths lurk the shadows of gods, demons, monsters, and supermen. And so, at last, our echoing steps bring us to the entrance to a rather large side gallery. Its entrance is curiously wrought in a tortured and organic form, out of which appear to grow strange creatures and forms the like of which have never been seen on Earth. Standing back, we see that the entrance is, in fact, in the shape of a gate, sculpted in a hybrid style lying somewhere between H.G. Geiger's monstrous organic architectures and the exuded forms of Rodin's The Gates of Hell. Entering the chamber, we find it lit with a lurid and strangely pulsating light whose origin is surely not terrestrial. Looking at our hands, we see our skin has taken on a strange purple tint. Strange and exotic music fills our ears, and yet we recognize it. It is the theme from the film The Forbidden Planet, A Strange Electronic Concoction by Lewis and B.B. Baron. Of which David Bradshaw spoke to us about in Tau City Radio, a wonderful feature of Starship SOFA. glimmer from the walls and ceilings, encased and framed in sparkling organic lacework web which covers every inch of the walls and ceilings. In the mirrors, large and small on the wall, we see here the huge metal tripods of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds wreaking havoc in the British countryside. There we see the strange, herd-like and elephantine fifth from Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell's Footfall and a hundred other scenes of alien invasion and conquest. In another flickering surface, we see the strangely comforting image of the Fuzzies from H-Beam Piper's The Adventures of Little Fuzzy. Indeed, the next few mirrors all seem to hold cute and fuzzy aliens, from Ewoks to Tribbles. Cute seems to be the theme of this section of the chamber, confirmed by the fact that even the light seems to have taken on a soft and fuzzy glow. Indeed, in the next mirror, we see before us that quintessentially extraterrestrial E.T. Here dressed in a little girl's clothes and sporting a blonde wig, as he reaches out with his spindly finger and croaks those memorable words. Our acute quotient well and truly reached. We cross the room and to the other wall, in whose reflective surfaces we see dimly at first, then in more detail and clarity, vaguely insectoid shapes and swarms. Swimming into focus, we see the image of a praying mantis-like creature reaching his hand out to a human, and we recognize Alan Dean Foster's Thranks from Nor Crystal Tears. In another mirror, we see reflected back at us our arachnoid phobias in the form of the bugs from Paul Verhoeven's adaptation of Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers. In another alcove, we find reptilian images flashing across the silvery mirrored screens reflecting mythological archetypal dragons and our evolutionary fear as well as fascination with snakes and lizards. Like chimpanzees gathering about a python, we peer fascinated into the glittering images. We see in one of them the magnificent dragons of Pern, rider astride as they swoop and flame the deadly falling thread. Then, suddenly, the room goes dark, and we feel alone, very alone. The sound of dripping water echoes ominously in the darkness. Dimly we perceive a light source, as at the end of a hall, and a strange mist fills the air. And there it is. A projection in the mirror, or is it really here? The petrifyingly fearsome alien, its smooth head at once dragon-like and phallic as it advances toward us. And then the room flares with the golden light of a flamethrower, and we sigh in relief as we see it is After all, a scene in the mirror from Aliens. And Sigourney Weaver, the warrior Mother Protectress, issues her challenge to the alien dragon queen.
1: Get away from her, you bitch.
2: Legs slightly shaky, we leave the alcove and walk to the center of the room. And there, we are joined by a woman. Our wife? Her name is... Her name is Rhea, and she is not our wife. She is the dead wife of Dr. Chris Kelvin, who killed herself after their separation. And looking down, we see that the floor is gone, and far, far below us, we see the shimmering, rippling ocean thoughts of Stanislaus Lem's sentient planet in his 1961 novel, Solaris. Blinking away the vertigo, the floor returns. We are about to leave, overwhelmed with the alienness of the place, when a shaft of glimmering light appears in the middle of the room, and the form of a man begins to appear. Ha! A clever projection onto the mirroring surface of floating aluminum dust, we think to ourselves. And yes, there he is, that best-known, perhaps, of all aliens, Spock, from Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. He cocks one questioning eyebrow and raises his hand to us in Vulcan greeting. This, ladies and gentlemen, is The Alien in the Looking Glass. One of the most frequent settings in science fiction is the alien world, be it Mars or a gas giant orbiting a distant star, and one of the most common characters is the alien, whether it be Zaphod, Beeblebrox, Spock, or the sentient planet Solaris. Sometimes these alien worlds and alien creatures represent real and scientifically plausible efforts on the part of writers to imagine what might be out there. Much of the time, though, they are also and often entirely, a device, a mirror. A mirror by which the author, screenwriter, director, or producer can reflect back at us their take on the human condition and human nature. In that quintessential of alien invasion stories, for example, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, the aliens, the Martians, are in fact a reflection of British imperial power, backed by its technological superiority and, in Wells' view, the terrible wrong it was perpetrating against colonial peoples. Spock, half-human, half-Vulcan, is a penetrating commentator on human society and human characteristics. Despite his occasional slips, he is the epitome of the rational, indeed logical being. However, as McCoy and Jim frequently point out, logic is often not enough, and intuition and emotion are also indispensable for understanding the world, particularly a world full of emotional beings. Take, for example, this typical scene in an otherwise forgettable episode, Galileo 7, in which McCoy berates Spock for misjudging their enemy's response to an attack.
4: Well, Mr. Spock, they didn't stay frightened very long, did they?
2: Most
5: illogical reaction. When we demonstrated our superior weapons, they should have fled. You mean they should have respected us? Of course. Mr. Spock, respect
4: is a rational process. Did it ever occur to you they might react emotionally, with anger? Doctor, I'm not responsible for their unpredictability. They were perfectly predictable to anyone with feeling. You might as well admit it, Mr. Spock. Your precious logic brought them down on us.
2: Spock is a fascinating character because his alienness allows him to comment on human foibles in society as an outsider, and also because his half-human, half-Vulcan nature allow for frequent explorations, of the nature and relative importance of reason and emotion, which is also a major preoccupation of Western philosophy. In the Western tradition, since Plato and Aristotle, reason and rationality has often been opposed to emotion and feeling, fear, hate, love, jealousy, and so on. Aristotle held that the human soul was made up of both rational and irrational elements. The irrational element, which we share with some animals, is made up of the vegetative faculty, the most primitive part of the soul responsible for basic needs such as eating and drinking. The human soul is also made up of an appetitive or appetitive faculty, which is responsible for passions and emotions such as hope, joy, sorrow, and fear. This element in humans is partly rational, since although animals share some emotions, they cannot control them as humans can. Moreover, according to Aristotle, human beings also possess a purely rational element in their soul, which he called the calculative element. This element gives us logic, reason, and the capability of scientific discovery. Of course, since Freud, the idea of rationalization has entered the popular imagination, the idea that ignoring our feelings and emotions and trying to justify our behavior through purely rational explanations is just that, excuses and justification. More recent research in the cognitive and neurosciences has shown just how interconnected what we tend to call our rational thinking is with our emotions and the solid boundaries erected between them in western philosophy seem to be blurring. There are other elements of our psyche which aliens in science fiction reflect back at us. When aliens are not acting as mirrors for human society or human behavior they are reflecting back at us our fears, our phobias, our nightmares and are mythological beings. Sometimes they act as angels, at other times they are demons, sometimes they are godlike in their power and magnificence, and other times they may seem more ordinary.
4: Arthur Dent, a perfectly ordinary earthman, was rather surprised when his friend Ford Prefect suddenly revealed himself to be from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse, and not from Guilford after all. And when Arthur Dent encounters Slarty Bartfast, the Magrathian coastline designer, who won an award for his work on Norway, and learns that the whole history of mankind was run for the benefit of a few white mice anyway, surprise is no longer adequate, and he is forced to resort to astonishment. Mice? What do you mean, mice? I think we must be talking across purposes. Mice to me mean the little white furry things with the cheese fixation and women standing screaming on tables in early 60s sitcoms. Earth, man, it is sometimes hard to follow your mode of speech. Remember, I have been asleep inside this planet of Magnathea for five million years and know little of these early 60s sitcoms of which you speak. These creatures you call mice, you see, are not quite as they appear. They are merely the protrusions into our dimension of vast, hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings... The whole business with the cheese and the squeaking is just front. A front? Oh, yes. You see, that? mice set up the whole Earth business as an epic experiment in behavioral psychology. A ten-million-year program. No, look, you've got it the wrong way round.
2: It was us. We used to do the experiments on them. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. From the tripods of the War of the World to Star Trek's Spock, Stanislav Lem's Solaris, and Douglas Adams' hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional white mice, What you are seeing is the alien in the looking glass. Let me leave you, then, with this, an excerpt from the choral adaptation of Terry Bison's They're Made Out of Meat, by Fredosphere. It seems harsh, but there is a limit. Do we really
4: want to make contact with meat? I agree, 100%. What's there to say? Hello, meat. How's it going, meat? But will this work? How many planets are we dealing with here? Just one. They can travel to other planets, in special meat containers, but they can't live on the so we just pretend there's no one home in the universe that's it cruel but you said it yourself who wants to meet me who wants to meet me who wants to meet me who wants to meet meet me
2: Incidentally, Terry Bison's "There Made Out of Meat" has also been made into a short film, which you can find on YouTube. This has been another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything: Reflections on Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'll look forward to meeting you again in my next installment, where I'll be leaving the Hall of Mirrors for a while to explore something different. This is Morgan Saletta, signing out.
3: There you go, thank you so much Morgan A star I'll put a link on the Morgan site Please do go over there and say hello So a little fact article by myself Or a little kind of, would you say a promotion By myself, a little plug Trying you know, drum up some business We are launching Yes we are basically launching Starship Sova Stories Volume 3 The Making Of This is going to be in the holodeck Part of Starship Sova So if anybody wants to come along and sign up for Starship Sova Volume Three: The Making of. This is where there'll be myself, Dee, and Ben Wooten will get together once a month for six months, and really put together the making of Volume Three. So you'll be kind of—it's like a live, like I say, probably six shows, interactive, where we'll actually take on board some of your suggestions, how to put the book together. You know, maybe even some ideas on writers because that's that's a you know it's actually f- strange since i've been doing this you know like volume one volume two volume three come along and i've been kind of prepping a couple of writers and straight away bang 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 yes yes tony get it, i'll get i'll be on so it's really nice that but you know we need some ideas for writers as well and part of this the making of is to get some you know two-way back and forward kind of feel for the book and feel for the, the writers who you might like in there so that's going to be one of the things that's going to happen in there. I'll give you like a heads up what we've actually, what you get for your money, for, for one, for a better description. There's two tickets for sale. There's the paperback ticket for sale and there's a the hardback ticket for sale. These will be priced at £39 for the paperback and £59 for the hardback. And you might think, whoa, they're steep for a paperback and a hardback, but that's not what you actually... Yes, you you get that book, but that's not what you're buying. What you buy, what you're getting is the kind of six live shows with the interactive, you know, that's that's what you're getting. So what you'll get is you'll get six live shows, again, like we say, with D, Ben and myself, you know, and just really chewing the fat, you know, working out all the kind of complications, listening to how we go on, how we actually put together this book. You'll get... The video recording of that show emailed probably about seven days after it. You know, so if you if you didn't if you missed the show, you couldn't make actually that one. Once you buy this, like say a ticket, each month I'll email you the date and the kind of link to the show, then you can come into this kind of virtual room and watch myself and Dean Ben go over it. If you can't make that date, then seven days later, i email out the video link so you can download them anyway. So you'll not really miss anything. You just, if you couldn't make it on that day, you might, you would miss a little bit of it interactive, you know, if you wanted to kind of put something over. But, you know, again, you, you could email us. You'll get a dedication in the book, along with all the other attendees. You know, this really book that we're doing, this volume three, this HD version, or the making of it's purely for everyone that kind of comes into this you know and signs up and becomes part of this thing that's the only number of books there's going to be so if there's only say five people signed up there's only going to be five books and each year i'll get like a dedication in this book well also what would be great is you know with this kind of software i can bring in like writers involved so if we get like a writer you know let's just say who have i got i you know he's coming there's the first one I have mentioned there that he's going to be in you know we could get Lavi into the kind of virtual world and we're going to question and answer and you know talk with him as well and you know discuss things like that and people could ask Lavi questions so that's the kind of things that we'll be able to do as well you'll be involved with the launch party it the <laughs> wine and drinks you know well beer and whiskey for me but once actually the book's ready to go, you know we'll have this little launch live launch party where we'll you know we'll all be there and we'll we'll get you there and we'll have a little drinks and it's probably the nearest we could be to like a kind of physical live launch party. You know, it's doing it live on the internet. You'll also get whatever whichever kind of bracket you sign into, you'll get the book posted out to you. So see if you get the paperback book. Once it's ready and once it's in the kind of launch and we've had the launch party, then I'll order that book up and it'll just get sent to you so you don't have to kind of worry about ordering the book. One of the coolest things as well is what we're going to do with this one is over the six shows, Ben's going to physically draw the cover. And with this kind of software, I can kind of hand it over. I can hand over my screen to Ben's screen so you can physically watch him. Draw the cover, you know, and you've seen some of Ben's work. It's just staggering. And what was, <laughs> I've actually had a chat with Ben. Just it was actually last night as well. Ben says, "Tony, is there any chance we can just have a little chat on Skype just to get a feel of, you know, what's what, what I need to do?" So we hooked up on Skype, and Ben says, "What's the brief, Tony for the for the art cover? Do you know, what do you want from me? What's the deadlines? What's the guidelines? What do you want us to draw?" <laughs> I just it's Ben. It's, it's it's entirely up to you and it was like honestly it was like probably the first time where ben's went oh, right oh oh right cuz i guess with you know being a professional artist every time you know you, you're asked to draw a certain thing and this time now ben's like ben that's that's where you go do it, just you you decide so it's going to be and maybe not difficult for ben but it's going to be a bit of a challenge you know that white canvas You've got to go and away and think about it. But again, when you see some of Ben's work and how he draws, you know, I've actually watched this. You know, how he does it; it'll be stunning. That to kind of watch this, this evolve, this picture evolve, and then, like I say, anyone who's just in there, the that book and that cover will be on there, and that's it. That's whoever's in this kind of attendees, who's in this workshop, you know, a lecture, whatever we want to call it. That's the only they're the only people that will get that cover. So it's a bit of a kind of special deal as well, and which is a neat thing you'll be able to watch because we've kind of i think me and have kind of we haven't physically tried it yet, but we're we thinking it's possible you'll be able to watch me with a pen with a, like a video I'll get like a video camera and we'll sign i'll be able to sign a bit of paper take a photograph of it, email it to d d'll get it and stick it in the kind of, in the, the pdf and that'll be you know so you'll see actually that happening as well. The whole, actually, you know, the, when I say go do webinar, that actually the video conferencing thing that they're supposedly going to do isn't actually done yet. So what you're going to see, we'll we'll be able to put some kind of video up there, so you'll see me kind of signing things, and you, obviously you'll be able to hear we're live, and we'll get D on. But we've actually tried it with the normal video, and yes, it's it's fine, but it's not this HD version. They still haven't released that, you know what I mean? So we're just waiting on that. What what this does make possible, though, is just more people can kind of come into that environment if they want and, ha- and have a listen. So, that is, star- you know, if you want to be involved in Starship Sova Volume 3, this just makes it more of like a community thing. You know, and if you've got ideas, if you've got maybe, this is, you know, if you've got an artist you, you know of or anything like that, you know, tell us if you're in part of this kind of community, tell her. And, you know, Dale kind of hunt that out, hunt that person out and sort it out. Because, and, my feelings for volume three, I know it's like a long way yet before this is the kind of the, the planning stage that's gotta go into the work that produces the book at the end, you know, October, November. I would like it even chunky, more writers in. Do you know, I think they mentioned we might have had maybe twenty people in last time. Do you know boost it up, get it get it get more people in, Do you know? That's the way like get your money's worth, to be quite honest. So There'll be a link on. will be. I you know. I'll mention this a few times because the date for the first one. So you've got right up until April the twenty second is the f- like the first show. That one of the, you know we're going to do six shows. The first one is April the twenty second. So you have basically got up until then to kind of book. Don't leave. It, I'm blessed. Don't leave until like say five minutes before the end of the show. You know, or the beginning of the show, and just say right. I'm gonna because I'm actually in that environment now, and I and I missed an email. From Ali. So apologies, Ali, for that, who signed up. And like I said, the the, the show had kind of kicked off. This was the Writers Workshop. And I missed Ali. You know, Ali had just at the last minute signed up to do it. And I was then obviously given like a presentation to introduce the Writers on that one. So don't leave it right to the last minute. But, you know, we're there on the day. You can sign up right up until the day. So, April the 22nd is the kind of 1st kickoff day, so you've got plenty of time. So, I will put links on and everything like that, and then we'll have like a, a bit of a build-up each week until Volume 3, the making of, is launched. So, there you go. Pop over to the site, see the links, and if you want to be part of that, that would be fantastic. And remember, this is one of the kind of major forces that keeps kind of Starship Sofa going. This is one. This is probably the main funding source for Starship Sofa. So take that into account, please. Next up on Starship Sofa, we have the main fiction by Adam Troy Castro. Now, this story first appeared in Lightspeed Magazine and it got picked up in the nebula awards to be it's nominated for a nebula award it's obvious by adam troy castro and you know a heads up as well hugo's you know we haven't got long for the hugo awards it could be in the hugo awards as well so if you do if you're wondering which stories to kind of nominate for the hugo awards there you go there he has another you know potential client and don't forget little old starship Silver for the hugo's award i think it's only about a week away if that so get your votes in And it's narrated by soon-to-be Mrs. Adams, (laughs) Christy Yant. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present...
6: RVs by Adam Troy Castro Statement of Intent This is the story of a mother and a daughter, and the right to life, and the dignity of all living things and of some souls granted great destinies at the moment of their conception, and of others damned to remain society's useful idiots. Contents Expect cute plush animals and amniotic fluid and a more or less happy ending for everybody, though the definition of happiness may depend on the truncated emotional capacity of those unable to feel anything else. Some of the characters are rich and famous, others are underage, and one is legally dead, though you may like her the most of all. Appearance. We first encounter Molly June on her fifteenth death day, when the monitors in charge of deciding such things declare her safe for passengers. Congratulating her on completing the only important stage of her development, they truck her in a padded skimmer to the RV showroom where she is claimed, right away, by one of the living. The fast sail surprises nobody, not the servos that trained her into her current state of health and attractiveness, not the AI routines managing the showroom. And least of all, Molly June, who has spent her infancy and early childhood having the ability to feel surprise, or anything beyond a vague contentment, scrubbed from her emotional palate. Crying, she'd learned while still capable of such things, brought punishment, while unconditional acceptance of anything the engineers saw fit to provide brought light and flower scent and warmth. By this point in her existence, she'll greet anything short of an exploding bomb with no reaction deeper than vague concern." Her sale is a minor development by comparison, a happy development, reinforcing her feelings of dull satisfaction. Don't feel sorry for her. Her entire life, or more accurately, death, is happy ending. All she has to do is spend the rest of it carrying a passenger. Vehicle Specifications You think you need to know what Molly June looks like. You really don't, as it plays no role in her life— "'but as the information will assist you in feeling empathy for her, "'we will oblige anyway. "'Molly June is a round-faced, button-nosed gammon, "'with pink lips and cheeks marked with permanent rose, "'her blonde hair framing her perfect face "'in parentheses of bouncy, luxurious curls. "'Her blue eyes, enlarged by years of genetic manipulation "'and corrective surgeries, "'are three times as large as the one's imperfect nature "'would have set in her face. "'Lemur-like, they dominate her features "'like a pair of Pacific jewels,' All moist and sad and adorable. They reveal none of her essential personality, which is not a great loss, as she has never been permitted to develop one. Her body is another matter. It has been trained to perfection, with the kind of punishing daily regimen that can only be endured when the mind itself remains unaware of pain or exhaustion. She has worked with torn ligaments, with shattered joints, with disfiguring wounds. She has severed her spine and crushed her skull and has had both replaced, with the same ease her engineers have used fourteen times to replace her skin with a fresh version unmarked by scars or blemishes. What remains of her now is a wan amalgam of her own best developed parts, most of them entirely natural, except for her womb, which is, of course, a plush, wired palace, far safer for its future occupant than the envelope of mere flesh would have provided. It can survive injuries capable of reducing Molly June to a smear. In short, she is precisely what she should be, now that she's fifteen years past birth and, therefore, by all standards known to modern civilized society, dead. Heroine Jennifer Axioma Singh has never been born, and is therefore a significant distance away from being dead. She is, in every way, entirely typical. She has written operas, climbed mountains, enjoyed daredevil plunges from the upper atmosphere into vessels the size of teacups— finagled controlling stock in 17 major multinationals, earned the hopeless devotion of any number of lovers, written her name in the sands of time, fought campaigns in a hundred conceptual wars, survived 20 regime changes, and on three occasions had herself turned off so she could spend a year or two mulling the purpose of existence while her bloodstream spiced her insights with all the most fashionable hallucinogens. She has accomplished all of this from within various baths of amniotic fluid. Jennifer has yet to even open her eyes, which have never been allowed to fully develop past the first trimester, and which still, truth be told, resemble black marbles behind lids of translucent onion skin. This doesn't actually deprive her of vision, of course. At the time she claims Molly June as her RV, she's been indulging her visual cortex for seventy long years, zipping back and forth across the solar system, collecting all the tourist chits one earns for seeing the wonders of modern-day humanity from the scrimshaw carving her immediate ancestors made of mars to the radiant face of unborn jesus shining from the artfully reconfigured multicultural atmosphere of saturn she has gloried in the catalogue of beautiful sights provided by god and all the industrious living people before her throughout all this she has been blessed with vision far greater than any we will ever know ourselves since her umbilical interface allows her sights capable of frying merely organic eyes and she's far too sophisticated a person to be satisfied with the banal limitations of the mere visual spectrum. Decades of life have provided Jennifer Axioma Singh with more depth than that, and something else, a perverse need, stranger than anything she's ever done, and impossible to indulge without first installing herself in a healthy young RV. Ancestry Jennifer Axioma Singh has owned RVs before, each one customized from the moment of its death. She's owned males, females, neuters, and several sexes only developed in the past decade. She's had RVs designed for athletic prowess, RVs designed for erotic sensation, and RVs designed for survival in harsh environments. She's even had one RV with hypersensitive pain receptors, that during a cold and confused period of masochism. The last one before this, who she still misses and sometimes feels a little guilty about, was a lovely girl named Peggy Sue, with a metabolism six times baseline normal and a digestive tract capable of surviving about a hundred separate species of nonstop abuse. Peggy Sue could down mountains of exotic delicacies without ever feeling full or engaging her gag reflex, and enjoyed taste receptors directly plugged into her pleasure centers. The slightest sip of coconut juice could flood her system with tidal waves of endorphin-crazed ecstasy. The things chocolate could do to her were downright obscene. Unfortunately, she was still vulnerable to the negative effects of unhealthy eating, and went through four liver transplants and six emergency transfusions in the first ten years of Jennifer's occupancy. The cumulative medical effect of so many years of determined gluttony mattered little to Jennifer Axioma Singh, since her own caloric intake was regulated by devices that prevented the worst of Peggy Sue's excessive consumption from causing any damage on her side of the uterine wall. Jennifer's umbilical cord passed only those compounds necessary for keeping her alive and healthy. All Jennifer felt, through her interface with Peggy Sue's own sensory spectrum, was the joy of eating. All she experienced was the sheer, overwhelming treasury of flavor.
1: And if Peggy... Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
6: Sue became obese and diabetic and jaundiced in the meantime, as she did, and during her last few years as Jennifer's RV as an immobile mountain of reeking flab, with barely enough strength to position her mouth for another bite. Then that was inconsequential as well, because she had progressed beyond prenatal development and had therefore passed beyond that stage of life where human beings can truly be said to have a soul. Philosophy Life, true life, lasts only from the moment of conception to the moment of birth. Jennifer Axioma Singh subscribes to this principle, and clings to it in the manner of any concerned citizen aware that the very foundations of her society depend on everybody continuing to believe it without question. But she is capable of forming attachments, no matter how irrational, and she therefore felt a frisson of guilt once she'd decided she'd had enough, and the machines performed the cesarean section that delivered her from Peggy Sue's pliant womb. After all, Peggy Sue's reward for so many years of service, euthanasia, seemed so inadequate, given everything she'd provided. But what else could have provided fair compensation, given the shape Peggy Sue was in by then? Surely not a last meal. Jennifer Axioma Singh, who had not been able to think of any alternatives, brooded over the matter until she came to the same conclusion always reached by those enjoying lives of privilege, which is that such inequities are all for the best, and that there wasn't all that much she could do about them anyway. Her liberal compassion had been satisfied by the heartfelt promise to herself that if she ever bought an RV again, she would take care to act more responsibly. And this is what she holds in mind as the interim pod carries her into the gleaming white expanse of the very showroom where fifteen-year-old Molly June awaits a passenger. Installation Molly June's contentment is like the surface of a vast Pacific Ocean, unstirred by tide or wind. The events of her life plunge into that mirrored surface without effect, raising nary a ripple or storm. It remains unmarked even now, as the anesthetician and obstetrician mechs emerge from their recesses to guide her always unresisting form from the waiting room couch where she'd been left earlier this morning, to the operating theater where she'll begin the useful stage of her existence. Speakers in the walls calm her further with an arrangement of melodious strings designed to override any unwanted emotional static. It's all quite humane— for even as Molly June lies down and puts her head back and receives permission to close her eyes, she remains wholly at peace. Her heartbeat does jog a little, just enough to be noted by the instruments, when the servos peel back the skin of her abdomen, but even that instinctive burst of fear fades with the absence of any identifiable pain. Her reaction to the invasive procedure fades to a mere theoretical interest— akin to what Jennifer herself would feel regarding gossip about people she doesn't know living in places where she's never been. Molly June drifts, thinks of blue waters and bright sunlight, misses Jennifer's installation inside her and only reacts to the massive change in her body after the incisions are closed and Jennifer has recovered enough to kick. Then her lips curl in a warm but vacant smile. She is happy. Arby's might be dead, in legal terms but they still love their passengers. Ambition Jennifer doesn't announce her intentions until two days later, after growing comfortable with her new living arrangements. At that time, Molly June is stretched out on a lounge on a balcony overlooking a city once known as Paris, but which has undergone perhaps a dozen other names of fleeting popularity since then. At this point, it's called something that could be translated as Eternal Night, because its urban planners have noted that it looks best when its towers were against a backdrop of darkness, and therefore arranged to free it from the sunlight that previously diluted its beauty for half of every day. The balcony, a popular spot among visitors, is not connected to any actual building. It just sits, like an unanchored shelf, at a high altitude calculated to showcase the lights of the city at their most decadently glorious. The city itself is no longer inhabited, of course. It contains some mechanisms important for the maintenance of local weather patterns, but otherwise exists only to confront the night sky with constellations of reflective light. Jennifer, experiencing its beauty through Molly June's eyes, and the bracing high-altitude wind through Molly June's skin, feels a connection with the place that goes beyond aesthetics. She finds it fateful, resonant, and romantic, the perfect location to begin the greatest adventure of a life that has already provided her with so many. She cranes Molly June's neck to survey the hundreds of other Arvies sharing this balcony with her, all young, all beautiful, all pretending happiness, while their jaded passengers struggle to plan new experiences not yet grown dull from surfeit. She sees Arvies drinking, Arvies wrestling, Arvies declaiming vapid poetry, Arvies coupling in threes and fours, Arvies colored in various shades, fitted to various shapes and sizes, pregnant females and impregnated males all sufficiently transparent to a trained eye like Jennifer's, for the essential characters of their respective passengers to shine on through. They all glow from the light of a moon that is not THE moon as the original was removed some time ago, but a superb piece of stagecraft designed to accentuate the city below to its greatest possible effect. Have any of these people ever contemplated a stunt as over-the-top creative as the one Jennifer has in mind? Jennifer thinks not. More, she is certain not. She feels pride, and her RV Molly June laughs, with a joy that threatens to bring the unwanted curse of sunlight back to the City of Lights. And for the first time, she announces her intentions out loud, without even raising her voice, aware that any words emerging from Molly June's mouth are superfluous, so long as the truly necessary signal travels the network that conveys Jennifer's needs to the proper facilitating agencies. None of the other RVs on the balcony even hear Molly June speak, But those plugged in hear Jennifer speak the words destined to set off a whirlwind of controversy. I want to give birth. Clarification. It is impossible to understate the perversity of this request. Nobody gives birth. Birth is a messy and unpleasant and distasteful process that ejects living creatures from their warm and sheltered environment into a harsh and unforgiving one that nobody wants to experience except from within the protection of wombs, either organic or artificial. Birth is the passage from life and all its infinite wonders to another place inhabited only by those who have been forsaken. It's the terrible ending that modern civilization has forestalled indefinitely, allowing human beings to live within the womb without ever giving up the rich opportunities for experience and growth. It's sad, of course, that for life to even be possible, a large percentage of potential citizens have to be permitted to pass through that terrible veil, into an existence where they're no good to anybody except as spare parts and manual laborers and RVs, but there are peasants in even the most enlightened societies doing the hard work so the important people don't have to. The best any of us can do about that is appreciate their contribution while keeping them as complacent as possible. The worst thing that could ever be said about Molly June's existence is that when the nurseries measured her genetic potential, found it wanting, and decided she should approach birth unimpeded, She was also humanely deprived of the neurological enhancements that allow first-trimester fetuses all the rewards and responsibilities of citizenship. She never developed enough to fear the passage that awaited her, and never knew how sadly limited her existence would be. She spent her all-too-brief life in utero, ignorant of all the blessings that would forever be denied her, and has been kept safe and content and happy and drugged and stupid since birth. After all, as a wise person once said, It takes a perfect vassal to make a perfect vessel. Nobody can say that there's anything wrong about that. But the disposition of people like her that makes the lives of people like Jennifer Axioma Singh possible remains a distasteful thing decent people just don't talk about. Jennifer's hunger to experience birth from the point of view of a mother, grunting and sweating to expel another unfortunate like Molly June out of the only world that matters— And the world of cold slavery thus strikes the vast majority as offensive, scandalous, unfeeling, selfish, and cruel. But since nobody has ever imagined a citizen demented enough to want such a thing, nobody has ever thought to make it against the law. So the powers that be indulge Jennifer's perversity, while swiftly passing laws to ensure that nobody will ever be permitted such license ever again. And all the machinery of modern medicine is turned to the problem of just how to give her what she wants and, before long, wearing Molly June as proxy. She gets knocked up. Implantation There's no need for any messy copulation. Sex, as conducted through RVs, still makes the world go round, prompting the usual number of bittersweet affairs, tempestuous breakups, turbulent love triangles, and silly love songs. In her younger days, before the practice palled out of sheer repetition, Jennifer had worn out several RVs, fucking like a bunny. But there has never been any danger of unwanted conception at any time, not with the only possible source of modal sperm being the nurseries that manufacture it as needed without recourse to nasty, antiquated testes. These days, zygotes and embryos are the province of the assembly line. Growing one inside an RV, let alone one already occupied by a human being, presents all manner of bureaucratic difficulties involving the construction of new protocols and the rearranging of accepted paradigms and any amount of official eye-rolling. But once all is said and done, the procedures turn out to be quite simple, and the surgeons have little difficulty providing Molly June with a second womb capable of growing Jennifer Axioma Singh's daughter, while Jennifer Axioma Singh herself floats unchanging a few protected membranes away. Unlike the womb that houses Jennifer, This one will not be wired in any way. Its occupant will not be able to influence Molly June's actions or enjoy the full spectrum of Molly June's senses. She will not understand, except in the most primitive, undeveloped way, what or where she is or how well she's being cared for. Literally next to Jennifer Axioma Singh, she will be, by all reasonable comparisons, a mindless idiot but she will live, and grow, for as long as it takes for this entire, perverse whim of Jennifer's to fully play itself out. Gestation 1 In the months that follow, Jennifer Axioma Singh enjoys a novel form of celebrity. This is hardly anything new for her, of course, as she has been a celebrity several times before, and if she lived her expected lifespan, expects to be one several times again. But in an otherwise unshockable world, she has never experienced or even witnessed that special, nearly extinct species of celebrity that comes from eliciting shock, and which was once best known by the antiquated term, notoriety. This she glories in. This she milks for every last angstrom. This she surfs like an expert, submitting to countless interviews, constructing countless bon mots, pulling every string capable of scandalizing the public. She says, I don't see the reason for all the fuss. She says, people used to share wombs all the time. She says, it used to happen naturally with multiple births. Two or three or even four or even seven of us, crowded together like grapes, sometimes absorbing each other's body parts like cute young cannibals. She says, I don't know whether to call what I'm doing pregnancy or performance art. She says, don't you think Molly June looks special? Don't you think she glows? She says, When the baby's born, I may call her Halo. She says, No, I don't see any problem with condemning her to birth. If it's good enough for Molly June, it's good enough for my child. And she says, No, I don't care what anybody thinks. It's my RV, after all. And she fans the flames of outrage higher and higher, until public sympathies turn to the poor slumbering creature inside the sack of amniotic fluid, whose life and future have already been so cruelly decided. Is she truly limited enough to be condemned to birth? Should she be stabilized and given her own chance at life before she's expelled, sticky and foul into the cold, harsh world, inhabited only by Arvies and machines? Or is Jennifer correct in maintaining the issue subject to a mother's whim? Jennifer says, All I know is that this is the most profound, most spiritually fulfilling experience of my entire life and so she faces the crowds, real or virtual, using Molly June's smile and Molly June's innocence, daring the analyst to count all the layers of irony. Gestation 2 Molly June experiences the same few months in a fog of dazed but happy confusion, aware that she's become the center of attention, but unable to comprehend exactly why. She knows that her lower back hurts, and that her breasts have swelled, and that her belly, flat and soft before, has inflated to several times its previous size. She knows that she sometimes feels something moving inside her, that she sometimes feels sick to her stomach, and that her eyes water more easily than they ever have before, but none of this disturbs the vast, becalmed surface of her being. It is all good, all the more reason for placid contentment. Her only truly bad moments come in her dreams, when she sometimes finds herself standing on a gray, colorless field, facing another version of herself, half her own size. The miniature Molly June stares at her from a distance that Molly June herself cannot cross. Her eye is unblinking, her expression merciless. Tears glisten on both her cheeks. She points at Molly June, and she enunciates a single word, incomprehensible in any language Molly June knows and irrelevant to any life she's ever been allowed to live. Mother. The unfamiliar word makes Molly June feel warm and cold all at once. In her dream, she wets herself, trembling from the sudden warmth running down her thighs. She trembles, bowed by an incomprehensible need to apologize. When she wakes, she finds real tears still wet on her cheeks, and real pee soaking the mattress between her legs. It frightens her. But those moments fade. Within seconds, the calming agents are already flooding her bloodstream, overriding any internal storms, removing all possible sources of disquiet, making her once again the obedient RV she's supposed to be. She smiles and coos as the servos tend to her bloated form, scrubbing her flesh and applying their emollients. Life is so good, she thinks. And if it's not, well, it's not like there's anything she can do about it, so why worry? birth, one. Molly June goes into labor on a day corresponding to what we call Thursday, the insistent wait she has known for so long giving way to a series of contractions violent enough to reach her even through her cocoon of deliberately engineered apathy. She cries and moans and shrieks infuriated, inarticulate things that might have been curses had she ever been exposed to any, and she begs the shiny machines around her to take away the pain with the same efficiency that they've taken away everything else. She even begs her passenger, that is, the passenger she knows about, the one she sensed seeing through her eyes and hearing through her ears and carrying out conversations with her mouth. She begs her passenger for mercy. She hasn't ever asked that mysterious godlike presence for anything, because it's never occurred to her that she might be entitled to anything. But she needs relief now, and she demands it, shrieks for it, can't understand why she isn't getting it. The answer, which would be beyond her understanding, even if provided, is that the wet, sordid physicality of the experience is the very point. Birth, two. Jennifer Axioma Singh is fully plugged into every cramp, every twitch, every pooled droplet of sweat. She experiences the beauty and the terror and the exhaustion and the certainty that this will never end she finds it resonant and evocative and educational on levels lost to a mindless sack of meat like molly june and she comes to any number of profound revelations about the nature of life and death and the biological origin of the species and the odd inexplicable attachment broodmares have always felt for the squalling sacks of flesh and bone their bodies have gone to so much trouble to expel conclusions it's like any other work she thinks Nobody ever spent months and months building a house only to burn it down the second they pounded in the last nail. You put that much effort into something, and it belongs to you, forever, even if the end result is nothing but a tiny creature that eats and shits and makes demands on your time. This still fails to explain why anybody would invite this kind of pain again, let alone the three or four or seven additional occasions common before the unborn reached their ascendancy. Oh, it's interesting enough to start with, but she gets the general idea long before the 13th hour rolls around and the market share for her real-time feed dwindles to the single digits. Long before that, the pain has given way to boredom. At the 15th hour, she gives up entirely, turns off her inputs, and begins to catch up on her personal correspondence, missing the actual moment when Molly June's daughter, Jennifer's womb and sister, is expelled head-first into a shiny silver tray pink and bloody and screaming at the top of her lungs, sharing oxygen for the very first time, but, by every legal definition, dead. Aftermath Jennifer As per her expressed wishes, Jennifer Axioma Singh is removed from Molly June and installed in a new RV that very day. This one's a tall, lithe, gloriously beautiful creature with fiery eyes and thick, lush lips, Her name's Bernadette Anne. She's been bred for endurance in extreme environments, and she'll soon be taking Jennifer Axioma Singh on an extended solo hike across the restored continent of Antarctica. Jennifer is so impatient to begin this journey that she never lays eyes on the child whose birth she has just experienced. There's no need. After all, she's never laid eyes on anything, not personally. And the pictures are available online, should she ever feel the need to see them. Not that she ever sees any reason for that to happen. The baby itself was never the issue here. Jennifer didn't want to be a mother. She just wanted to give birth. All that mattered to her in the long run was obtaining a few months of unique, vicarious experience, precious in a lifetime likely to continue for as long as the servos still manufacture wombs and breed Arby's. All that matters now is moving on, because time marches onward, and there are never enough adventures to fill it. Aftermath, Molly June She's been used and sullied, and rendered an unlikely candidate to attract additional passengers. She is therefore earmarked for compassionate disposal. Aftermath The Baby. The baby is, no pun intended, another issue. Her biological mother, Jennifer Axioma Singh, has no interest in her, and her birth mother, Molly June, is on her way to the furnace. A number of minor health problems, barely worth mentioning, render her unsuitable for a useful future as somebody's RV. Born, and by that precise definition, dead, she could very well follow Molly June down the chute. But she has a happier future ahead of her. It seems that her unusual gestation and birth have rendered her something of a collector's item, and there are any number of museums aching for a chance to add her to their permanent collections. Offers are weighed and terms negotiated— until the ultimate agreement is signed, and she finds herself shipped to a freshly constructed habitat in a wildlife preserve in what used to be Ohio. Aftermath. The Child. She spends her early life in an automated nursery with toys, teachers, and careful attention to her every physical need. At age five, she's moved to a cage consisting of a two-story house on four acres of nice green grass, beneath what looks like a blue sky dotted with fluffy white clouds. There's even a playground. She will never be allowed out, of course, because there's no place for her to go, but she does have human contact, of a sort. A different RV almost every day, inhabited for the occasion by a long line of living who now think it might be fun to experience child-rearing for a while. Each one has a different face, each one calls her by a different name, and their treatment of her ranges all the way from compassionate to violently abusive. Now eight, the little girl has long since given up on asking the good ones to stay, because she knows they won't. Nor does she continue to dream about what she'll do when she grows up, since it's occurred to her that she'll never know anything but this life in this fishbowl. Her one consolation is wondering about her real mother, where she is now, what she looks like, whether she ever thinks about the child she left behind, and whether it would have been possible to hold on to her love. Had it ever been offered, or even possible? The questions remain the same from day to day, but the answers are hers to imagine, and they change from minute to minute, as protean as her moods, or her dreams, or the reasons why she might have been condemned to this cruelest of all possible punishments.
3: <laughs> There you go, A big thank you to John Joseph Adams allowing Starship Silver to play that story and again well done news too <laughs> fantastic news you've just made my day, excellent Next up is Film Talk and it's by Dennis Lane as you know, normally Rod Barnett takes takes you down the lane of Film Talk, but Rod is swamped with, with, with life in general and has to back out of Film Talk, so and i knew dennis was itching to kind of come on board with you know with some idea and i says dennis this will be ideal for you so this is dennis lane's first film talk i'll put a link on the dennis's site you know dennis is slightly i love this you know dennis lane was born in in the early days of the 60s well i was born in the middle 60s then so you're slightly older than me <laughs> <laughs> but I'll put a link on new Dennis's story. He's got books out there, poetry books just being released, short stories. Dennis says he's travelled the world since 1986, living and working in 14 countries, and has now settled in his spiritual home of South Africa. He's worked in the steelworks during the steel strike of the 80s, and was a student teacher during the teaching strike of 86. There's a, there's a common theme there, you little radical here. Since then, he says, he's followed, been followed around the world by coups, earthquakes, and hurricanes. <laughs> it is If Dennis vis- visits, battle down the hatches. Please, pop will do Dennis Lane Books. But we'll hear more of Dennis each and
0: every month. So, Dennis, sir, over to you. On the Beach. A review from the Jacaranda City. Welcome to the first of my short talks on science fiction movies that, whatever their status when they were first released, have somehow slipped into the nether regions of the collective consciousness. I'll be attempting to summarise each movie and pointing out just why I feel that it's worth searching for these unregarded gems. With the Middle East seemingly heading for greater conflict, death and destruction, and with nuclear reactors in Japan threatening to go into meltdown, my mind was drawn back to a classic movie of the late 1950s, Stanley Kramer's On the Beach. Adapted from Neville Shute's novel, and starring Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Anthony Hopkins, and showcasing Fred Astaire in his first dramatic role. An anti-war movie whose key message comes across through observing the details of a range of individual responses to the imminent date with a cloud of radioactive dust. It asked the viewer the question, what would you do if almost everyone in the world were dead, and you knew that you too would be meeting your maker in five months' time? Here. We have a scientist who wants to win just one motor race, before asphyxiating himself. A naval officer and his wife, who take the life of their child and then their own. Or the party animal, who turns to the bottle and to an affair with a visiting submarine captain, before he opts to leave her and die with his crew back home in California. Released the week before Christmas, 1959, Now, that must have cheered up cinema-goers as they contemplated the last-minute search for a Barbie doll or a Corgi Cadillac. The movie was presented as significant by United Artists. In fact, it premiered in 18 cities around the world, including Washington, D.C. and Moscow. As I was only a baby during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, I didn't experience the fear at first hand, but On the Beach gives one a feeling for that era. A trite summary of the plot would be US submarine arrives in Australia after a nuclear war. Only a few people in Australia and the submariners have survived. Nuclear fallout is on its way and everyone is going to die. A phantom Morse code message is received and the submarine investigates, finding that it's a wind-blown coke bottle in an American power plant that is tapping the transmitter. Submarine returns to Australia a month before the arrival of the deadly cloud. Everyone deals with their own inner devils, and then dies. There, 30 seconds and it's done. But the power of the movie is in the time that it takes to say this. At 2 hours and 14 minutes, it can seem long, but to me, that's the point. You get to see the everyday lives of the characters, even as they deal with the almost unimaginable stress of their situation. And so, when they all face their fate in different ways, they all seem real. In Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's 1969 book On Death and Dying, she describes the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. I wonder if, a decade before, she watched this film, as it takes the characters through each of the five stages as we sit silently watching, wondering what our response would be. In relation to the craft of the film, there are six Dutch angle shots peppered throughout the movie, the tilted angle serving to highlight the alienation and disorientation. For example, as Peter and Mary contemplate taking the government-issued suicide pills that will allow them to avoid the lingering death of radiation sickness. Or when Admiral Bridey and his secretary Hosgood drink a toast to a blind, blind world. There are repeated metaphors in the movie. For example, The atomic race is tipped the nod in Dwight Tower's, the nuclear submarine's captain's, sailboat race, and in Julian Osborne, the nuclear scientist's, car race, where, no matter how fast the two go, they cannot avoid the nuclear destruction that they have been a part of creating. There has been a lot of discussion over the years of the science in both the novel and the film around decay rates of radioactive fallout and the level of mixing of the Northern and Southern Hemisphere's weather systems. However, to me, that's incidental. The movie today could be about the last few humans surviving some global ecological catastrophe and waiting to die. The point is that the film is about the humans, about their coming to terms or not with their fate, both personal and, for the world watching the movie, political. The final scenes are of an empty and desolate Melbourne with a banner from a religious gathering at the city centre. The banner reads, There is still time, brother. And the final shot of the movie is a close-up of the banner. Now, someone very dear to me has an almost pathological aversion to drama. Black and white movies are also a hard sell. I could get her to sit on the couch by describing this movie as science fiction, but. She's from the Margaret Atwood school of thought. As the sainted Margaret would say, it contains no intergalactic space travel, no teleportation, no Martians. But science fiction it most certainly is. For those of you who sometimes want a break from the bangs and the whistles, the lasers and the light shows, rent a copy of On the Beach. Not a cheery movie. In fact, it left me with that sadness one experiences when watching something terrible and yet inevitable. If a good movie is about producing an emotional reaction, then this is definitely one. So, that's the first of my reviews recorded in the depths of my walk-in closet. It's time now for me to go and watch a movie. Bye.
3: There you go, Dennis. Thank you so much. Actually, Dennis has done a narration for Starship Sofa as well, which is probably going to be played at the end of this month. A Will McIntosh story and... You know, a fantastic narrator as well. All-round good guy. <laughs> Next up is part five of Michael Swanick's How to Run a Con.
4: Hello, this is Dagger,
3: And I'm Surplus. And we're here to teach you How,
5: how to, to Run, run a, a con. con. Today I thought we should differentiate between confidence games and investment swindles performed by reputable financial institutions of all sorts. It seems to me that the salient differences are... um,
4: Well, I don't seem to be able to think of any. Oh, my dear friend, there is a very great difference the matter of artistry. It takes no artistry at all to sit at the helm of a multi-billion dollar corporation, direct your minions to create worthless financial instruments, and then instruct other underlings to sell this empty paper to the gullible particularly when you know there is absolutely no chance you'll personally ever face a jury. Agreed. Consider only the case of an obscure confidence artist named William Thompson. An 1849 article in a New York City newspaper recorded that he had the habit of going up to a perfect stranger in the street, striking up a conversation, and then, before leaving, asking, "'Have you confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow?' At which point, having been convinced first that Thompson was an old friend he somehow couldn't place and then that his odd request was in some sense a joke and finally that going along with the gag would be the sensible thing to do, the mark would hand over a solid gold Swiss-built stem winder worth hundreds of dollars to a complete stranger as if it were the most ordinary thing in the world. That takes artistry.
5: Note also that the mark got to enjoy a pleasant, if brief, conversation with somebody he thought was an old friend. So it's not as if he didn't get something out of the encounter. He had the privilege of being taken by a true artist. Thompson had the gift of Blarney, to be sure. But an artistic con can be performed without saying a single word. There's a famous case in the 19th century when a deaf mute took advantage of the American government's failure one year to put the words five cents on their nickel. The coin had only a large V on it, so that when gilded, it looked exactly like a gold $5 coin. The man would go into a tobacconist's, point at a five-cent cigar, and then slide the gilded nickel across the counter. If he only received a cigar, he left without complaint. But, as often as not, he was given change, which he then absent-mindedly pocketed. That was elegant. I defy any prosecutor in the world to prove that he was guilty of anything other than taking advantage of a windfall, which 11 out of 12 jurors
4: would have been delighted to have happened to them. They say there's no such thing as a perfect crime, but that certainly comes close. The immortal George C. Parker made a
5: living by selling off New York City's public monuments, including Madison Square Garden, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Grant's Tomb, and the Statue of Liberty. He became an American legend by selling the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm, Twice a week. For years. Every time you say, if you
4: believe that, I have a bridge to sell you, you're helping to keep the great man's memory alive. In Europe, there was Eduardo de Valfierno, an Argentinian, who in 1911 paid several men to steal the Mona Lisa from the Louvre. So far, a simple criminal act. But he had earlier commissioned six convincing copies of Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece, which he proceeded to sell one by one to unscrupulous art lovers.
5: Alas, he was caught when he tried to sell the real thing. Had he simply brokered its return, he might well have wound up with a fat finder's fee and the gratitude of the world. He should never have descended into mere... Mm.
4: Finally, to prove the case that a confidence game is no mere involuntary transfer of money, but a genuine artistic act, consider the case of the English literary superstar, Virginia Woolf. Woolf? Really? You could look it up. On February 10, 1910, Virginia Woolf and several friends, including the master hoaxer, William Horace Devere Cole, darkened their skin and dressed up in Abyssinian costumes. Earlier, an accomplice had been sent with an official-sounding telegram to the HMS Dreadnought, which was then moored in Weymouth, stating that the crew should prepare for a visit of foreign royalty. At Paddington Station, they demanded a special train to Weymouth, but were talked into settling for a VIP car. At Dockside, they were met with full honors and given an honor guard and a tour of the ship. Throughout the tour, they spoke only in an invented language, though they did hand out cards written in Swahili. When they were especially impressed by what they saw, they said, Bunga, bunga. Oh, dear. Back in London, the group revealed their exploits to the press, enraging the British Navy. However, since they'd broken no laws, they could be charged with no crimes. The act was performed purely for the artistry of it, which I believe proves our thesis irrefutably. It does. So, parents,
5: if you're looking for an honorable and artistic profession for your children... Tell them to seriously consider
4: the confidential arts, but whatever you do, don't let them become bankers. This is surplus, and I'm Daga teaching you how, how to, to run, run a con. Ah, oh, what a swindler Virginia Woolf would have made.
5: Yes, it was a terrible loss to our profession when she became a scribbler.
4: If only it had occurred to her to sell the dreadnought then she might have become one. <laughs>
3: There you go, Michael. Thank you so much. So, there you go. That is show 181. We'll bring you another nebulated, nebulated nebula-nominated story. You have got Lightspeed there to go and thank and pop over and say hello again. We're big cheer for John and Christy. You know what I mean? That's just fantastic news. Don't forget Blood and Chrome podcast if you want to have anything to do with the the TV side of kind of this science fiction genre. We might cover it over there. And the making of Volume 3 Starship Sofa Stories is now up. If you want to be part of that, tickets are on sale. That is Starship Sofa. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week, just like to say, goodnight from me. Can the
5: heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... Storchic Sofa. Evacuation procedure
4: initiated. Shuttle set for us. Here are be opened in three, two,
5: one.